You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. I'm an advocate for women's rights in childbirth, founder of Birth Monopoly, co-creator of the Exposing the Silence Project, a national photography project on birth trauma, and former vice president of Improving Birth, the nation's largest consumer-based maternity care advocacy organization. You can learn more about my work at birthmonopoly.com. Today, we are talking to Heather Thompson, who is a good friend and colleague of mine who I respect very much. Welcome to the show, Heather. Thank you, Kristen. Respect goes both ways for sure. (laughs) Thanks. Um, Heather has a doctorate in molecular and cellular biology and worked in clinical research for 25 years in maternal and infant health. She's just finished up her stint as director of research at a freestanding birth center for about seven years and now is deputy director at a reproductive justice organization called Elephant Circle in Denver, Colorado. Well, welcome to the show, Heather, and we are going to be talking about something a little different and pretty interesting, I think, which is marijuana use, or I should say the evidence for marijuana use in pregnancy and um, postpartum, right, Um, into into breastfeeding and the, the postpartum period. So tell me a little bit about your background and your experience with marijuana use and pregnancy? Why, how on earth did you get into this? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And one I get asked often, uh, I, I usually reply that I was drawn into it. It certainly, certainly wasn't a conversation I sought out. Uh, but my background in molecular biology and the fact that I have been a part of the Denver birth world for the last 12 years meant that when cannabis was becoming more liberalized here in Colorado, lactation consultants, midwives, doulas, people that I knew personally were like, scientists, can you read the literature and tell me what you think? So I did that. I got as many papers as I could. I combed the literature. I read lots of uh, reviews. I read lots of advice from varying agencies and bodies about how they recommended or didn't recommend it. And at the time I started doing the research, Colorado didn't have recreational marijuana um, use legalized yet. So there really, it was hard to find stuff. Things weren't as easily accessible. And there really weren't that many agencies talking about marijuana outside of the topic of illicit use. So it got lumped in with all sorts of other things. But here in Colorado, we've had to separate it out because now it's a legal substance in the state, but it's still a Schedule I controlled substance federally, which means that um, in Colorado law, that can be problematic if if your baby tests positive for marijuana exposure at birth. So... People wanted to know what the evidence was, what the health risks were, what the legal risks were. And so I just dove into the science, read everything I could read, and started giving people my best read of the literature and what I really thought the risks and potential benefits were of marijuana use during pregnancy and breastfeeding. I would love to hear a little bit about the history of marijuana criminalization. Um, When you and I were chatting prior to doing this show about what we were going to talk about, You mentioned that, and I thought, well, I had never even occurred to me that that would be part of the picture of what we are looking at now. 
Can you talk about that a little bit? I think some people will find that really enlightening. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to realize that um, cannabis has been used medicinally for millennia. It, you know, it goes all the way back to the uh, Chinese Emperor Shen in the third millennium BC. And until 1942, cannabis was still part of the U.S. pharmacopoeia. So tinctures were provided for labor uh, pains, for menstrual cramps, for gout, for folks with uh, mood disorders, for folks with um, appetite issues. So all the same sorts of uh, remedies that you hear about cannabis being used for now, it was actually used. Um, and the, the American Medical Association actually in the initial days really resisted uh, make criminalizing and making marijuana illegal because it was such a useful herb in their pharmacopoeia at that time. But in the 1930s, the U.S. was having lots of conversation about immigration, specifically Mexican immigration, interestingly. And um, there was, you know, we were in a place of race relations being tense here in the U.S., even in people who lived here. And uh, there was a, a lobby from Harry Anslinger, who was the chief of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and some say a lobby from the cotton lobby, because hemp was actually a very, very popular, successful crop at that point, and cotton was having a hard time getting a foothold in that industry. Um, they really started a campaign linking racism to marijuana use. So specifically linking it to uh, quote unquote dirty Mexicans bringing it in the country um, and linking it to things like jazz, which were at that point linked to um, black folks. And I can give you a quote. This is not just my interpretation of this, uh, but Harry Anslinger was quoted as saying, um, when he announced the Marijuana Stamp Act of 1937, which essentially uh, criminalized marijuana, there are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the US. Most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others. Reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. Wow. I mean, I had... I had an inkling. That's really interesting. And it's also kind of interesting to think about, um, you know, you had mentioned cotton, that there might, you know, that there was maybe some anti-competitive stuff happening here and how different things might look today if things, you know, if things had gone differently, um, cotton is huge. I mean, everything there, you know, there is no competition for cotton. Right. Um, and, Imagine if they had chosen to discredit and smear and criminalize a different substance. We really do pick and choose what we accept. There's so much cultural element that goes into acceptance, um, which is part of why I start with that history, that I think it's really important for healthcare providers now. Um, I mean, at least in the state of Colorado, our public health campaigns are really trying to err on the side of caution. And so they're talking a lot about the, the harms and that, um, it, you know, it is a even though it's legal now, it's not any less harmful than it was when it was not legal. And the reality is it wasn't made legal because it was harmful. That, didn't, that really didn't have anything to do with it. So, so putting that in the context of other things that are legal but are 
also harmful. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like we know Zofran causes birth defects, for example, yeah. but it's still prescribed. Right. Uh, um, I mean, morning sickness is one of the biggest um, pieces talked about here in Colorado. You don't use cannabis medicinally for morning sickness. Um, there's lots of campaigns that say that. There's lots of providers who say that. And they usually then go on to say, you know, there are pharmaceuticals that your doctor can give you um, and they are better for you as a pregnant person. The reality is that the vast majority, something on the order of, of 60 to 70% of the drugs that we prescribe and give to pregnant folks have never been tested in pregnant folks. You can't get research approved if you're going to try something out on one group of pregnant people. Yeah, you know, I just read an article within the last few weeks, um, it, not a brand new article either. It was by Ann Lyerly, who um, is on the ethics or was on the ethics committee at ACOG at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Um, and she had a whole article on how we don't trust, we don't test drugs on pregnant women. We are leaving pregnant women out, out of the, of, out of the body of research that we have. And of course it's a, it's a really controversial thing. And it might sound like, it might sound like it makes a lot of sense. Like my goodness, of course you shouldn't be testing drugs on pregnant women. But then, right. but then when you look at it, like, well, pregnant women do get sick. Pregnant women do need drugs. And sometimes people who are already sick do get pregnant. <laughs> so yeah, I was actually on a panel with a pharmacologist once and he, his, um, argument went even further than that, that not only do we not do research on pregnant women, we don't do research on women, period, for the most part. The, the vast majority of drug studies, safety, efficacy, those sorts of, um, you know, research studies that need to be done to get approval from the FDA are generally on middle-aged men and often even middle-aged white men. And so you, you, we've created this control group that actually represents only themselves. To, you cannot then try to extrapolate to other people. And he was arguing that a woman's metabolism over the course of pregnancy varies dramatically in the first trimester to the third trimester. And that we should be thinking about dosing medications based on way more complicated factors than we usually think about when we're giving pregnant folks drugs. So wow. Was, that yeah. blew my mind. I had a lovely conversation with him afterwards. It was really interesting. Yeah. Well, and what I want to talk about on the show is after the break, what, what do we know about the evidence for marijuana um, in pregnant women and postpartum? And then after that, what do we not know? Right. Something that I think doesn't get talked, talked about often enough is just simply admitting that there are things we do not know. And rather than giving advice based on um, a lack of information or just fear to say, we actually don't know in these situations and leave the door open for maybe learning about those things rather than pretending like we know something that we don't know. And then after that, we're going to talk about the implications of all of this. And I know you told me before um, kind of an interesting and sad story about how this, how this all had impacted one mom in Colorado who you worked with and what can birth workers take away from this? You know, how can they, how can they take this information and actually apply it to their clients and their patients? So let's go to a quick break and we'll be right back with Heather. This is Birth Aloud. 
with my mom. Kristen looks Gucci. My mom works at Berthman Opti. <laughs> this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci and Heather Thompson. We're talking about marijuana use in pregnant women and um, during the postpartum period. We just talked a little bit about the history of marijuana criminalization and some of the context for, for where we are today. Heather, let's talk about what we know about the evidence for marijuana use in pregnancy and postpartum. Yeah, we've been studying marijuana use for over 30 years in the U.S., and Canada also had a longitudinal study that's been going on for 30 years. Um, so there's basically three primary longitudinal studies. Um, there's the one in Canada uh, that was started in 1978, and it follows mostly low-risk uh, European Canadians of moderate income. And then there's the study here in the U.S., which was actually designed as um, a response to fears about the crack epidemic and sort of how that might impact um, inner city folks and marijuana use. And so it was sort of in that, that same era. So the early 1980s, 1982, I think. Um, in inner city Philadelphia, uh, it's 60% African-American women, most of whom were single mothers, most of whom were living in poverty. And, and I say that because the different demographics have actually showed slightly different outcomes. And I think that's really important when we're talking about multifactorial situations like growing and keeping babies alive. So then there's one more longitudinal study that comes from the Netherlands, and it's been collecting data since I think 2000, 2001. So they don't have quite as long a time of collecting data, but it also is a mostly low risk um, mixed ethnicity and mixed socioeconomic status study. I want to say one quick thing about how the funding worked, at least in this country. So once marijuana became a Schedule One drug, Schedule One means there's no potential for medicinal use. So in fact, you're really not allowed to get research funds for that. And marijuana is sort of unique that way in that research funds were really restricted and the Schedule One status was, was really held up as the reason for that. So for many, many years, the only place you could get any marijuana to study uh, was from the University of Mississippi. So the University of Mississippi had a farm with marijuana, and so that's what was used uh, if you, like, provided marijuana to your people in your study. Otherwise, the marijuana that people were smoking was black market marijuana. So there wasn't any control for what they were using. You know, they tried to account for how much they were using and whatnot. So the other piece of the puzzle is that all this research in the U.S., including this longitudinal study, is funded by the National Institutes of Drug Abuse. So that's the NIH arm that does function to study drug abuse specifically. And I think it's really important to always ask questions about who funds the research because that gives you a really good idea of their initial perspective. And knowing their initial perspective is really helpful when you are trying to analyze their results and conclusions. The biggest, um, most consistent effects seen in the literature across the Canadian study and the U.S. study and the one in the um, Netherlands is uh, preterm birth, so babies being born before 37 weeks, and uh, low birth weight is another big concern at birth. There also has... Um, 
the problem with the oh, an increased uh, NICU admission. The problem with those three parameters and what we know now, because in the last couple of years, folks have started to really tease apart the various factors. So not having race be a big factor, not having the major longitudinal study in this country be of poor single parents living in the inner city who are African-American, which we know they have different relationships to birth weight and preterm birth just because of poverty, just because of stress, just because of their race. So people have tried to tease those apart. And what we have really learned in the last few years is that um, the effect of marijuana is not an independent effect. A, marijuana alone does not cause low birth weight. Marijuana alone does not cause preterm birth. Um, and it certainly doesn't if somebody is not using very heavily. Anecdotally, I have known families who use marijuana a lot, like as in Rastafarian smoking most days, all day long. They tended to have babies who came a little sooner and were a little smaller. And a couple of those midwives were like, they need to smoke a little less weed. So anecdotally, I think that if you're a really, really heavy user, marijuana might be an independent effect. But what we're learning is it really is not otherwise. And you know, NICU admission as a parameter, it, it is an easy thing to study because we can find it in hospital records, but there's so many variables that go into NICU admission beyond health status that it's a really tricky variable to use to evaluate health effects of a newborn. Are, is anybody looking at how much people are smoking? I could see a mom or a pregnant person occasionally smoking for morning sickness as opposed to, like you said, someone who it's a lifestyle and they're smoking all day long yeah. every day. Yeah, these longitudinal studies mostly divided folks into low, moderate, and heavy users. And heavy users um, are mostly defined as people who are smoking seven times a week. And, and remember, all of these studies are smoking, and they're all smoking uh, marijuana cigarettes. Uh, and there is a fair bit of, in different countries, particularly up in Canada, a mixing of tobacco with uh, marijuana in joints. So you really cannot even separate the effect of tobacco smoke because the wide variety of these people in these studies were also smoking cigarettes, which we know for sure has independent effects on low birth weight, NICU admission, and small for gestational age or uh, preterm birth. That's interesting. So these people are not smoking medicinally. These people are smoking recreationally. Uh, in, yes, that we've been studying for a long time, yet these are all recreational users. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the only medicinal cannabis that's been available in the U.S. until just recently um, is a synthetic FDA-approved um, molecule called Marinol is its, is its uh, trade name. And so it's, it's my understanding is I think it's a liquid medicine. And you, only certain people could get it. It was, it was very, um, very controlled in how many folks were prescribed it. And I will say, interestingly, Marinol is Schedule 3. So it actually doesn't run into any of the research funding um, or federal problems that the whole plant of cannabis does. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, it speaks to our culture. We really love 
we love things isolated. You know, we're in a scientific era. We, we like our technology. If you can take a plant and pull out a single molecule from it and make a drug out of that, which is all the drugs we have. I mean, aspirin came from bark uh, initially. And, you know, it all ultimately comes from something we found out in nature. But the FDA much prefers uh, single molecules to, they're easier to regulate, they're easier to, you know, try and manufacture in a really concerted and controlled sort of way. So there, there's all those pieces as well. Yeah, that is kind of interesting, especially when you have people nowadays, um, you know, a little bit of a move to growing your own food and <laughs> potentially growing your own medicine. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I, I should also speak to the concern that I hear a lot, that uh, marijuana use prenatally is going to lead to attention, cognitive issues in kiddos when they're between six and like 15 to 19. That's the span of data we have. Um, and there is some evidence from the longitudinal studies that we have that the kids who were being studied struggled in school and had some attendance issues, had some cognitive issues. The problem is we still cannot separate out the use of tobacco, their living experience, and many of those kids were still living in poverty at that point. And we know for absolute sure, without a doubt, that poverty affects academic performance attendance, you know, your ability to focus, concentrate, all those pieces. So um, I get a little concerned. Uh, in the state of Colorado, this is something that's talked about a lot um, from a public health perspective. And it's a piece of information given to pregnant women really um, regularly. And I, I'm not saying it's not true. I'm not saying I don't believe that those investigators didn't see that in those kids. I just worry that we are saying a woman who may have used marijuana moderately in the first trimester of being pregnant, that, that we can isolate that exposure to having cognitive effects in a teenager. I think that I think it's really hard to control a lifetime of exposures. Um, so that's my concern about the connections. There's a little bit of animal data to say that there are brain changes with marijuana exposure. That's not a surprise. We've actually known that for a long time. Do we get concerned about growing brains in utero and marijuana exposure? I think most of us say yes, um, which is when I really try to have conversations with clients about why they're using cannabis during pregnancy, how they're using it, when they're using it, is there something else that might be safer to use? Um, and I try to really step back from being super clear about what we think we know of the effects of marijuana specifically. Because I think a myopic conversation about marijuana misses other social and health risk factors that might be as easy or easier to change in a person's pregnancy and postpartum experience. What are some reasons that someone would use marijuana during pregnancy? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the really interesting part about our Colorado experiment here is that we really have people using cannabis medicinally. 
I mean, in fact, they use it the way anybody would use some sort of medicine prescribed to them. So the vast majority of people that I end up talking to are, some of them use it for morning sickness. Um, most of the time, it's not just morning sickness, though. These are folks who've had hyperemesis throughout their first, second, and third trimesters. Which is severe morning, like debilitating morning sickness. And really decreases health for the baby. Like, you don't want moms to not gain weight. Um, that, well, I had a mom just recently, um, her OB actually suggested and recommended that she use uh, cannabis over Zofran to control her nausea pregnancy. Yeah, and you had mentioned that story to me before. I think at the end, we'll come back to that and um, get get a little more detail on that story. I've had other people use it for um, migraines, for lupus, for um, pain, from other things. Um, I had someone who was recovering from cancer when she found out she was pregnant. And part of her long-term remaining cancer-free had to do with the antiviral um, capacities of marijuana. So she used it medicinally as part of her recovery and then found out she was pregnant and stopped using it and found that her quality of life was really not very good um, without it, that she still was suffering a lot of pain, a lot of anxiety. And so again, with her doctor, she decided that the best course of action for her was to continue using marijuana. I had a mom who's an epileptic and um, the traditional pharmaceuticals did not work for her. Her body um, did not thrive on them. And she actually moved to Colorado to have access to medicinal cannabis. Um, and she talked about someone who really uses it therapeutically. I mean, she is very aware of of when she uses and how she uses. Um, she uses almost no flour, so she's almost smoking nothing at all. She's using patches and suppositories and tinctures, which is the other thing that we've learned in Colorado is cannabis use isn't just, you know, what we always imagined in the reefer madness days kind of thing, the Cheech and Chong movies. Um, it, it really has evolved to be a product um, and not just a bag of shakes that you got from somebody. And I, I think that's a big yeah. like behind a behind a convenience store. <laughs> totally. So, so many of the folks that I uh, encounter and work with, they incorporate it into being parents the way you would any kind of altering substance, whether it be wine, whether it be, you know, opioids, whether, you know, whatever it is that we are using as parents. We caffeine. That caffeine. Caffeine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Smartphones. If there's any drug that mothers use. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I've wondered about smartphones. Like, you know, when is that going to become a conversation of not paying attention as a parent? I hope not soon, but it certainly can reduce your ability to respond and deal as much as a glass of wine might. Well, we say, yeah. And we, you know, we compare texting and um, driving to drinking and driving as far as how much it impairs you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I would say, I mean, the people that I encounter are usually reaching out to me for some sort of help navigating a system. Um, and the vast majority of them are using medicinally. And I think part of the reason those are the people I see is because those are the people who are telling their healthcare providers. They, they, we, we've legalized it in Colorado, and so they want to share that as part of a good disclosure relationship with their healthcare provider. I think people who are using marijuana recreationally, I don't hear from because they don't talk about it necessarily so right right do we have any numbers on how many pregnant women are using marijuana do we know 
Um, there are some numbers out there. It's somewhere on the order of two to four percent. Um, though that's sort of the range that you see. There is, was some data that came out last year that suggested that women in Colorado um, <clears throat> were using marijuana more often since liberalization. Um, and those data got a lot of press and, you know, the headlines didn't represent the data very well. And, and what those data actually showed is that in the U.S., marijuana liberalization is increasing and everybody's using more marijuana than they were. And that the biggest group who was using more marijuana were the 15 to 20 year old age group and they used it in their first trimester often before they found out they were pregnant. So, you know, it was a really specific group of people who were using it more. Interestingly, uh, my demographic, middle-aged, uh, middle-income white ladies uh, are using more cannabis and drinking less uh, in Colorado, which well, interesting because our demographic is <laughs> more than anybody. <laughs> so <laughs> I was going to say, in my experience, that might not be a bad thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, in fact, they did an analysis of Medicaid payouts here in Colorado uh, for senior prescriptions of opioids. And they did it in all the states that it's currently legal, and um, they dropped dramatically, like 50 to 60%. So older folks are starting to find ways to use cannabis rather than traditional opioid drugs. Teen use has not gone up. I get asked that all the time. Are kids using it more? The answer is no. Uh, edibles are a tricky piece of the equation, and little kids have gotten into edibles, and we've had some overuse issues that way. Uh, but I think the longer it's legal, the better people are, are aware of keeping the marijuana gummy bears under lock and key. <laughs> I've always thought that the debate about marijuana in general is really funny to me because I know how people act. I had plenty of experience with alcohol and marijuana and other fun things in my 20s. And in my view, alcohol is way worse than, than any of it. I, you know, it, it gets you to do really stupid, dangerous, self-destructive, harmful things potentially. Um, and it can, you know, be addictive in a way that interferes with your, your future. Um, and then I think about the people I know or knew who, you know, smoked a lot of pot. And it was like, I mean, what's the worst thing you did was maybe like you sat at a stoplight for too long or, you know, you ate a bunch, you know what I mean? It, it just seemed like, it's just funny to me that it is that people get so upset about marijuana, which isn't a substance that I use today, but I just, I don't see like the, um, the taboo about it. It's not heroin. <laughs> you know? well, interestingly, we're in this real pendulum swing in Colorado. It was much less taboo 10 years ago for, you know, and I, I, I can't figure out if it's people talk, are talking about it a little bit more. And so the, the cultural judgment has shifted, but it, um, from a healthcare perspective, it's a lot more tabooed now than it, it was before liberalization. And I, I think that's just how culture swings in reaction to these big shifts and whatnot. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the data shows that there's no question that alcohol and tobacco use uh, are clearly more harmful prenatally, postpartum than marijuana use. And, and we do have, I mean, we have 30 years of data on marijuana funded by the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, and still they didn't find wildly 
terrible outcomes. I, I, th I think that's really important to note that we've been studying it a long time with the perspective of seeing harm. And it's, it's, we haven't shown that definitively. And I think in and of itself, that says something. And I'll tell you that the um, head investigator for the Canadian study, actually, uh, he's testified on in a number of big legal cases about marijuana and parenting and is it considered child abuse and neglect to use marijuana when you're pregnant and he says definitively it's not child abuse and neglect he's been studying it for 30 years and in his opinion the harms are small and usually resolved within a few years after the kid is born and often can be um, more impacted by their environment than by marijuana itself and that we should just be talking about marijuana so I, I'm you know I, I'm glad that he shares my view in that and and that's my big concern right now is we'll talk so in that a, so that is your baby. view that I, I would that the harms are small I think the harms are small and I I mean I think the jury is still out on this long-term cognitive piece um, I don't want to say that I know those harms are small but the harms. well let me just stop you what do you mean when you say harms are small what harms and what does small mean well, so those were his words. The harms were small directly. Um, and I think my interpretation of what he meant is um, low birth weight in and of itself is not, it, it, is, it is an outcome as a result of something. Um, you, you know, my firstborn was five and a half pounds, which is actually the cutoff for low birth weight. And um, I wasn't drinking or smoking marijuana or drinking much coffee, but I was stressed as anything at work. I was hauling around big things, heavy things. I was working 12 hour days. I was on my feet five days a week. Um, you know, I think I was in a really stressed out cortisol state. She was like, I am coming a little early and a little small because this environment is stressing me out. Um, my midwife's comment to that was, wow, you need to keep this teeny tiny baby skin to skin for two weeks. You know, just stay right there. Let's use delayed cord clamping. Let's make sure you're breastfeeding well. Let's use all the physiology we can to counteract this outcome of low birth weight. Um, and, and I see us using that as a diagnostic tool of harm. I, I, I struggle with that. Because what happens is if there is fear that a baby has been exposed to marijuana and fear that they're going to be low birth weight, when that mom births that baby, most of the time that baby is removed very quickly, take it, you know, they lose their umbilical cord very quickly, skin to skin is not honored, breastfeeding is not initiated. So in fact, we're taking this one piece that could actually be an expected, let's call it an expected outcome rather than harm. It, it, you know, when we talk about moms who are on methadone, who struggle with opiate addiction, those babies are born with neonatal abstinence syndrome. They are born dependent on methadone. So they have a series of symptoms that they are born with. That, that NAS is not a harm. It is an expected outcome from a mom who is using methadone, who is doing that because that's better for everybody than using opiates. And I, I, that wording feels better to me. Uh, you know, NICU admission, again, a complicated parameter. Preterm birth, uh, I, I definitely, babies need to be born as late as they certainly can. But marijuana being a sole predictor for somebody giving birth early, I don't see that 
that data being correlated and that harm can be mitigated and maybe it's an expected outcome of exposure to something, whether it be alcohol, tobacco, poverty, stress, race. So it's a language shift, I guess. You know how much I like the language shifting. I mean, <laughs> even I, 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 I'm dealing a lot with talking to people about babies and substances and parents. And I think our language is important. I mean, even the, the term addicted baby, there is no such thing. I recently was told, somebody explained it so eloquently, babies cannot be addicted because addicted has a craving cycle. Babies are born dependent. And I think those two words change the picture you have in your mind radically um, to say a dependent baby versus an addicted baby. So, you know, harm, I think, is used to be punitive and to make people fear the decision of using cannabis. But we are in a state where it's legal and people also are using it medicinally. And I think talking about expected outcomes helps parents make better decisions and maybe brings less punitive language into the conversation. So that's my little spiel. Okay. <laughs> well, it definitely is a shift in thinking. And, you know, I'm, I know much less than you about all of this. And it is kind of, I can feel my brain kind of like contracting yeah. and expanding <laughs> as you're talking. Well, um, I've been doing this work for, you know, really intensely for the last three or four years, but for really seven or eight years. And so I have, I've shifted a lot of the ways that I think and act and talk about it. Um, and that's just been the more I deal with parents who are actually trying to navigate this, I think the more compassion I have for how hard parenting is and, um, and that I can figure that out with them. Um, and I want to talk about that a little bit too. Before we get to that, is there anything you want to say about what we don't know about the evidence for marijuana use? Yes, um, breastfeeding. We know very, very little about breastfeeding. Um, at, to date, there are three primary research articles from the U.S., um, only three. And they were published in 1983 and the early, not two in the early 90s. The data that we use in all public health campaigns here in Colorado um, and everywhere that I see it in reviews about what we know about how much marijuana gets into breast milk and how much gets to baby comes from a single paper from 1982 that was a letter to the editor so it did not get peer reviewed. It was by awesome researchers who were doing great stuff at the time. So I don't doubt their methods in any way. But they had two women, with a, one with an eight-month-old baby, one with a seven-month-old baby. One of the women smoked every day, once a day. One woman smoked seven times a day, every day. Had they both done that during pregnancy and while they were breastfeeding? Those babies were deemed in good health by a pediatrician. Those mothers were deemed in good health by um, their physicians. And they just had one of those mothers smoke a joint and they collected all these samples about an hour later. So there was no timing of the exposure and the account for metabolism. There was no accounting for what was already in her bloodstream before she got there because she'd been smoking seven times a day for this baby's eight-month life. Um, and there was no accounting for how much she smoked or what she smoked. But the data from that one individual is used to inform all of the policy around breastfeeding in the U.S. Um, and the conclusion of those researchers were clearly marijuana is contradicted during breastfeeding. 
even though everybody was in good health, because it actually went from breast milk, breast milk into babies, which would be, it probably would, the, the ideas it's contraindicated. The other two studies didn't show any um, long-term effects. Uh, one study showed slight motor skill differences in babies under three months of age, um, but they were very slight and they were gone by one year of age. Uh, in contrast, in Jamaica, there has been a study that was initially funded in the U.S. We weren't that pleased with the results, so we stopped funding it, but they got funding for another five years. And they followed um, low, moderate, and heavy smokers in a place where, in Jamaica, where cannabis is enculturated. And interestingly, if you are a heavy consumer of marijuana there as a woman, you probably participate in its commerce as well. So you sell it. And if that is your situation, you are more economically independent. You do not have to marry to sustain yourself. And you tend to live in a household with more adults to kids ratio. If you consume very little, you tend to be involved with less of the commerce, and there tends to be many more kids to adults in, in a little bit rougher household environment. What they found was the kids who were exposed to the heavy amounts of marijuana actually were more alert, more stable, were thriving at one month postpartum, and that continued out to five years postpartum. They were uh, more relaxed, they were more emotionally in tune with their caregivers, they performed better at school, and obviously the researchers did not conclude that marijuana makes your kids smarter faster. Uh, they said it really is home environment. This is a perfect example of the heavy marijuana use was offset by this much better home environment and much more attentive caregivers. So, um, and that, that idea of having a caregiver feel good about themselves, improving their parenting, has been replicated in other marijuana parenting conversations. You know, I was just going to ask you about that. Um, we haven't really talked about potential benefits. I don't, I don't think benefits is something that generally comes into the conversation, although clearly if people are using it medicinally, they're doing it for the benefits, not for the risks, and not just to get high. And we don't have very much time left at all. Let's go to our final break. Great. And then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about the implications of all of this. Great. This is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. We're talking with Heather Thompson about marijuana use in pregnancy and postpartum. Heather, earlier you, you mentioned a woman who had come to you who had been prescribed cannabis by her doctor. Can you tell us the rest of that story very quickly in the couple of minutes we have left? Yeah. Uh, well, first I'll say nobody prescribes cannabis in the state of Colorado. We did separate it from prescriptions. You get a recommendation. Um, and so her OB knew that she was struggling with hyperemesis um, severely throughout her pregnancy, uh, recommended that she use cannabis because she wasn't interested in Zofran because of the birth defect research we have about that. She went to the hospital in labor um, and they asked their typical triage questions and she confessed she'd been using cannabis. Um, at that point in labor, the hospital told her that she would be denied breastfeeding assistance. She was not going to be allowed to breastfeed while she was at the hospital. And, um, and this one was new. I'd, I'd heard the first two before, but that she would not be allowed to return to the hospital for any breastfeeding support postpartum. 
um, which is unfortunately a little bit one of the the implications of cannabis use during pregnancy. Um, health risks aside, if your baby tests positive for cannabis exposure, by Colorado law, it is a automatic finding of child abuse and neglect, a civil finding. Um, and we're using that, that law pretty regularly right now. In this woman's case, this hospital, um, because of fears of liability, hospitals are having pretty strict no breastfeeding if you have used cannabis policies. Um, and in fact, the progressive hospitals have, are now offering waivers of liability if you would like to receive lactation support even after admitting cannabis use. Um, but this woman, the punitive nature towards her, and, and the nurses said unkind things and made references to her not being educated and that she had harmed her baby. Um, and most of this went on during labor. They denied her a pump after labor until um, somebody else got involved and really helped advocate for her. Um, it scares me from a legal point of view because we still don't really know what her future looks like in that regard. And it scares me from a health point of view because there's no data to suggest that eliminating breastfeeding is helpful in this situation. And if anything, I think no breastfeeding is a much greater harm, an actual harm, than anything we know about cannabis use while breastfeeding. Yeah. Well, and it gets really complicated um, for nurses. Um, really complicated. And so what, what would you say to birth workers about, about all of this? Yeah. What would you say to, what would you say to, I guess, doulas and midwives, I imagine have, they, their approach is probably a little bit different and they don't necessarily have to deal with the pressure of being a mandatory reporter in an institution where you could really get in trouble. Yeah. Well, and, and I would agree that out-of-hospital midwives and doulas both have a lot of skills around navigating risk-benefit conversations with clients and helping them figure out what... I think that's a much better way of putting it. I, actually, yeah. I feel bad that I, <laughs> that I said... I didn't mean to imply that nurses are less compassionate. No. But like you said, yeah, I mean, as far as when we're talking about risk-benefit conversations... Um, that's hard to do in a hospital. Yeah, as an L&D nurse. I mean, and so medical providers, midwives who are in hospital or CNMs um, or nurses, I have a lot of compassion, particularly here in Colorado. They're really the front lines of this ever evolving situation. And they're getting varied information from all kinds of places. And they have to make quick decisions with someone who's in labor that they've never met before. I mean, it's, an, it's another good example of continuity of care or the lack of continuity of care in our maternity system. Really makes the situation a lot more pressure building for the nurse specifically. So usually what I say is if you are a mandatory reporter, um, really investigate your mandatory reporter uh, laws. Know if there's a caveat about child abuse and neglect. And if you don't feel able to evaluate whether child abuse or neglect is a piece of it, when you call, make your call as a mandatory reporter, you can add narrative to it. You can say, I, you know, I think this family might be doing and just fine. Maybe they're using cannabis in a useful, helpful, beneficial way. But I'm a mandatory reporter and I'm feeling the pressure of that as an L&D nurse right now. So I'm making this report. And in most states, that narrative does follow that report. And long term, when it comes to the implications of an investigation on that family, that can actually hold a lot of weight. Nurses commentary about patients um, and what they see from them really 
can be powerful, both directions. And so if nurses want to execute as much compassion as they can within the constraints of a system and policies, I, I really encourage them to lean into what they know about the relationship they have with this person and try to put that mandatory reporting in that context. And that helps a little bit. Would you say anything different to doulas and midwives? <clears throat> Well, I mean, people who are working, I mean, if a doula is in a hospital. Then Not in a hospital. I, I'm thinking more of, I'm thinking more prenatally because if you're talking about doulas and midwives, it's probably not going to be a like, you know, on the fly situation. It's yeah, probably and going to be a more long-term, you know, throughout pregnancy discussion. So, so I talk to people about what their stressors are and how they deal with that. And if marijuana is a part of dealing with stress, then that can be a jumping off point for um, figuring out how to help them lower their stress overall. And you don't necessarily have to focus on the marijuana use in and of itself, like simply eliminate it, but talk more about how and why it's being used and uh, is there something that could be better. I really encourage prenatal providers to help clients understand the legal risks too, not just the health risks. Because what I'm seeing in Colorado is I'm not seeing these babies who test positive turning out to be unhealthy. They're not mostly low birth weight. They're not mostly preterm. They not, are not growing up with cognitive issues. But the investigation from the Department of Human Services really impacts a family in a tricky sort of way. So if you know, when folks call me prenatally and ask my advice, I ask them to evaluate their health risks and their legal risks. If there's any reason they might intersect with Child Protective Services, um, birthing in a hospital is a really, it's a, it's a place where you lose autonomy very quickly. So home birth and birth center birth can provide a different context for marijuana use than a hospital system can. That's interesting. Well, we're pretty much out of time, Heather. Always. Is there, <laughs> thank you. Is there anywhere people can get more information on this? I blog about marijuana issues pretty regularly um, at elephantcircle.net. We have a blog there. So as research comes out, I try to analyze it and give my take on it. Um, I have a paper and some toolkits that I will be getting out sooner rather than later. So I have a toolkit for providers to use and a toolkit for parents to use, really just to help them evaluate a risk-benefit analysis for themselves, um, as well as a literature review. So at some point, when I figure out how to make that available, Elephant Circle will be the place you can find it. This has been Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll see you next time.